eyes up, don't get all tied up Hoping you wise up, the multiple lies of the multifaceted, multi-complex system of living that people are living Stuck in inertia, that's a diversion, government worship, instead we are searching Ancient mysteries, ancient history, sacred energy, and how to discern it Human autonomy, truth of philosophy, UFOology, human psychopathy, super anomalies, human ecology You got the bottomies up in your consciousness, all the thoughts that we've been dancing around The system wants to blow your candle out, but we won't let it, we reject it with our pathetic lies, so we chant it down This is Chant Down. ChantDownRadio.com is the website where you can find much more info on the show. If you're a newcomer, the today's show is with the author, Paul Wallace, Paul Anthony Wallace. And he's been on before, and I wanted to have another deep discussion about our ancient past and what really went down on planet Earth and what our existence is really all about. I think these are some of the biggest questions that we need to be focusing on. To understand this crazy world that we live in, we need to understand our ancient past. And it's fascinating to me, the ancient past, as I've gone over on many shows, and will continue to, as we're trying to flesh out Earth's, one of Earth's biggest mysteries. And a great person to do it with is Paul Wallace, who has a background in the church. and looked at the texts and saw a lot more than just what people are saying and he had to speak out. Tenant Down is full of people that have to speak out and I'm happy to bring people on like that and I hope that you enjoy Tenant Down and we have a great year ahead of us here 2024. Going to get into many subjects. The random wheel of subjects will keep on turning on Tenant Down giving you a plethora of different subjects to sink your teeth into and really try to understand this crazy, insane asylum world we call planet Earth and make sense of it because there is truth. Truth is objective and not subjective. You just have to get to the core. And people don't want you to get to the core. And that's why we are here on Chant It Down, Chant Down the Bullshit. So, enjoy this episode, and if you are a listener to the show, or a new listener, what you can do to help out the show is give us a five-star review on any platform out there. It helps with the algorithms, it keeps things going, uh, it helps this show uh, stand out amongst the rest. So if you think it's a show that stands out amongst the rest, unique to its own way 
then please spread the word, share it, and give it the review that it deserves. If you like it, give it a five-star review. Uh, and if you want to take the additional step to help the show out, you can always join the Patreon account where you can get an additional show called Afterthoughts, which will help with the uh, production of my documentary that I'm releasing this year. Unnamed yet, but I will come up with a name for you. And I think um, it'll, it's looking out to be a brighter year than last year already. And so, at least for me personally and on this show. So if you want to join Patreon, you certainly can. No pressure there. You also get access to my album and other things that I put on there. And if you just want to put a tip in the jar, you can do that too on the website. Buy a t-shirt. Any way you can help out. Or just listen and uh, spread the word. Now enjoy Paul Anthony Wallace. Welcome back to Chan It Down. I'm your host, Loomis. This is episode 257. ChanItDownRadio.com is the website. And so many times on this show, we try to decipher this world that is confusing and upsetting. And we often look at our modern problems that we are facing. Although it is important to shine light on these things we have a greater, bigger picture that looms in our background, and there is a foundation of many of these troubles uh, and why there is so much confusion in the world and why we don't understand the world we live in and why the meaning of life seems to be clouded with collecting pieces of paper to live and, and the survival cycle. And that is our origins as humans itself, the lost civilization that built the megaliths and the ancient cover-up that is keeping us from knowing what human life is about. I invited back on Paul Anthony Wallace, uh, speaker, author of the Eden series of books, The Eden Conspiracy, The Scars of Eden, Escaping from Eden, Echoes from Eden, and soon to be another one, Invasion of Eden, and also a researcher into the oldest writings on earth with a background in the church. Paul took close looks at the Old Testament of the Bible and saw meanings that could not be ignored that led him down the rabbit hole of antiquity to the understanding of a greater universe and what he calls paleocontact. Uh, we we, we uh, get, have him back here again to discuss the world that can make sense if we understand the origins and what it is really to be human. So welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Channel Down, Paul. Lumas, great to be with you again. Thanks yeah. for having me. Great to have you. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, we, it's been a while since so we talked about three and a half years ago, I believe. So it's, it's a little while ago. Yeah, and a lot has happened since. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're in a pretty interesting time period. Uh, we, that's we for sure. Are. Yeah, we certainly are. I was actually planning on taking a little pause in the Eden series after the Eden conspiracy, uh, but I found this was not possible because so much has happened in the last 12 months. I realized I was going to have to uh, bring the reader up to date right up to the minute uh, to see how what's happening now connects with what our ancestors had to say in the past. And so that's why I've written The Invasion of Eden. Hey, that's good. Well, I think <clears throat> it's it's important to bring things up to now because more has happened than ever before, where before you could probably just keep talking about the ancient past, and we will today as well. But um, there's so much present-day stuff that it, it's like we we really – people need to understand this world fast if they want to get on board. 
Yes, yes. If people have not been following the story, uh, they've got a lot of catching up to do. And I think in the next 12 months, uh, a lot of people will be forced into that catch-up game. Yeah. So I guess we're kind of creating a buffer, people like you and me, for the people that are going to be in shock mode when things about this earth uh, is going to be revealed. Exactly. And that's a big uh, motivator for me in, in putting the Eden series out, because I realized in 2009, the Roman Catholic Church was taking steps to prepare people for disclosure so that they wouldn't suddenly be in a blind panic and thinking the sky was falling. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if, if they can do that under a pope as conservative as Benedict XVI, then I think the rest of us have some catching up to do. Right. Why do you think it is that, that they decided to come out at that particular time and a lot of people would say well they're in on it too you know the vatican and stuff so it's kind of uh yeah. um why do you think they would have came out then and started talking about it well i agree with you loomis that the higher ups in the vatican already had the information uh, they've known about current contact and they've known about paleo contact for a very long time so it's not that suddenly they had new information, but I think the reason they called the colloquium in 2009 to begin preparing the faithful for contact was they gave the impression that they were expecting a disclosure from another authority, an authority that they couldn't control. And they wanted to get in on the front foot rather than be on the back foot and say, oh, don't you remember, we already talked about this, there's no issue here. And that was certainly how it appeared. There were things going on at the time that suddenly meant the policy of non-disclosure was a little less watertight at the human level. So there were missions to the moon, you might remember, at that time. And perhaps they couldn't predict how China or Japan would handle arriving on the moon and finding non-human artifacts. At the time, I wondered if that was the reason if you talk to Michael Saller, uh, he has another theory as to why all of a sudden the Roman Catholic Church jumped up and said we'd better get people ready. So they did this in a with great fanfare in 2009, and then everything went quiet. So the other disclosure didn't happen at that time. But it's a good thing they did it because of everything that's happened in the last 12 months. I think people who've been paying attention to what happened then would be more ready than others. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, I've got that impression too, that it's something bigger that they can't control. That's uh, pushing this out because um, I know a lot of people that especially look at the conspiracy side of things are automatically throwing project blue beam at everything. But there's, I think there's much more layers to this than just, that you know uh, one guy serge manass talked about that long ago but we there's many layers to this it's much more nuanced than a lot of people i think are saying out there i uh, oh for I, sure well yeah. i think for a start we have to um assume that the policy of non-disclosure has not all been decided at one level it's not all been decided at the, the human level and it's not all been decided by a single unit within military intelligence yeah. the policy of non-disclosure has been set by our visitors now, this is what Hamer shed said in 2020 he was the brigadier general who for 28 years was israel's chief of space security 
So it was his job to know if we were in contact. It was his job to know if there was any kind of threat being represented. And he said that at a covert government level, we have been in contact for more than seven decades and that the uh, representatives of what he called the Galactic Council had decided not to self-disclose until you and I have a better understanding of what space is and what spaceships are. That was his phrase. And so you've got a, a situation there where he's saying the visitors have said they won't disclose until the public are brought into the picture of what space is, what spaceships are. And so this then relates to what's been happening in the last 12 months in terms of the program, in terms of Congress wanting disclosure from the Pentagon of what contact has been happening, what technology we have available, because it would seem that the bar for us being brought into the picture is a technological bar. At, at least that's one side of the picture as represented by Hayama Shed, and that until the program has been able to reverse engineer everything we have, reproduce the technology that's been shared so that we are genuinely a spacefaring civilization, it's only then I think the ball game really changes. And so there you've got the political will uh, among military intelligence, you've got the agreement of our visitors, and then the other ingredient is disclosure to the wider military intelligence community and then to Congress of the success of the program. And that's in the hands of private corporations. All that reverse engineering work yeah. has been uh, delegated out from the Pentagon to private corporations. We're talking about the aerospace industry. Mm -hmm. So those are the companies who are employing the scientists who are doing the reverse engineering, people like Jacques Vallée, Eric Davis, Gary Nolan, uh, technicians working for Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Skunk Works. It's really in those people's hands as to how quickly we move into an era of disclosure and then an era of collaboration on a quite different footing with our visitors. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that maybe that, um, well, do you think that maybe these, all this technology that we've had in the last, I mean, technology's snowballed in a pretty short amount of time. When you think about lifespans um, back from about world war two, our, our leap in technology probably was these reverse engineering from computers to, uh, Everything we're like what we're talking on right now, maybe actually that reverse engineering. Do you think that's possible? Well, I remember when I was a very young boy uh, in the late sixties, the explanations we were being offered for the uh, rapid technological advancement we were seeing was this was the benefit of the space program. This was the benefit of everything NASA was doing. Now. I'm sure that's true, but I would just add a layer to that, that when we have very high budget technological programs, such as by NASA, there is very often a black program that goes with it. Yeah. So there's a public program and then there's a shadow side to it doing something even more interesting. And that's been the pattern really since the work on uh, radar. Uh, 
so I think it was a kind of a half truth. I I agree with you, Lumas, that we've had massive leaps forward because yeah. we have had a technology sharing situation with our visitors. That is why I think there are so many artifacts for the program to be working on. It's not just fragments of exotic materials. We now know, if we listen to James Lukatsky and other witnesses who've given sworn testimony to the ISIG, the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, we have entire craft. So we've been, I think, given a lot to play with uh to see if we can make our own and that's really been i think the game we've been in for the last seven plus decades and in the meantime we've had a lot of technological benefit from it but i think that the program is further forward behind closed doors than it is in public certainly in the area of gravity manipulation uh zero point energy i think we already know how to do that yeah. behind closed doors and so i'm not necessarily that optimistic that left to their own devices the private corporations are really going to get their skates on in terms of disclosing what they've got and by privatizing this work of reverse engineering well, unfortunately, the Pentagon has created an incentive that runs against rapid disclosure, because if you've got access to enormous black budgets year after year, uh, and yet in six months you've made the breakthrough, well, it's going to be in the interests of your shareholders to reveal your breakthroughs as slowly and gradually as possible. Um, that's just the, that's the reality of business life there's an incentive for this to go slowly so i think something else has to happen to speed all this along what would you say that would be something out of left field that we can't see well the corporations working on the program are just working on the program they don't run the show yeah. uh, they they can't control every moving piece in the puzzle. And I've already said, I think there is a non-human layer to the decision-making. And I wonder if the watertightness of the compacts by which we've operated for the last 70-plus years is not as tight as it's been in the past. I wonder if that's why there's been an acceleration of mass sightings. I wonder if that's why uh, other... Uh, sightings slash phenomena have been trialed on us. Uh, I wonder if that's why we heard this from the uh, initial assessment paper that the Senate briefing was shown. Every six weeks, US military intelligence activities are interfered with by UAPs. There has been an acceleration of these things, I think, because there's a little bit more leakage coming from previous uh, compacts than in the past. So things could change because one of our visiting factions just gets a little bit impatient. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I mean, well, look, I uh, when I look up in the skies at night, which I've done a lot, um, I'm seeing all kinds of things up there. There are anomalies that are not satellites. And there was just two years ago, I've, I've seen more UFO sightings in the last couple of years than in my whole life. And yes. I, I actually went outside about two years ago and I, I videoed a UFO that was pulsating broad daylight 
up there for an hour just sitting there and uh yeah you know it definitely was nothing i've ever seen in my life so there is a lot going on up there and i don't think they can co- quite keep the lid on it at least for no the, for watching. Uh, exactly these things are not as rare as they once were and so insurance against disclosure has to happen and so that means more soft disclosure and i think that's probably why thomas monheim the inspector general of the intelligence community is in a forward-leaning posture in terms of how much should be out there in the public domain, same as with DOPSA, hence the David Grush complaint being allowed to escalate to the hearing, the congressional hearing in the way it did last year. Right, right. So I was going to go into the ancient cover-up too. I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, More people, I think, are starting to wake up to a greater history of this planet. I, I see it. Um, I mean, even Graham Hancock had a, a show on Netflix. So um, many incredible things have happened on this planet and that make our, our day-to-day lives look pretty sterile and boring. But why this ancient cover-up? Why, why put in the false theory of evolution as fact? You know, why why say that civilization is only 6,000 years old? And how, how can they possibly convince everyone that these giant megalithic sites were carved with primitive hand tools and rocks that couldn't, we couldn't move today with our own cranes and they tell, tell us as ropes and pulleys. And so somebody knows something who is alive now. Lots of people do, I'm sure in the elite circles, but why make a blurred past? I, you know, I think the Vatican library knows something and the Smithsonian, but what is this ancient cover up? Like, you know, like they could be digging deeper in, in Giza. They could be, uh, you know, Brian Forrester has found like that uh, with radar at Tiwanaku, there's a whole like cavern underneath there. And, you know, like, why aren't we like trying to find these things? Instead, it's been, it's just cover up of our ancient past. And, and we're supposed to believe in this evolution, or even if you go into religion, which is your background, they say, you know, that the world's only 6,000 years old. So there's this, or even less than that, I'm not sure. But I mean, why the ancient cover-up? Well, yes, I think religion has a lot to answer for. I mean, religion is the reason that historians have tried to squeeze human history into 6,000 years because it was religion that told us how to read the Bible. And if you read it in a fundamentalist way and add all the dates up, well, that's how old creation is. Uh, And with all the uh, science that has emerged in the last couple of thousand years, nevertheless, that view still has a certain persistence to it. Why? For religious reasons. And I think you've asked a lot of questions about the the cover-up, why a cover-up, why is it controversial? And I think to answer that, I will go to a a very ancient religious example of cover-up and narrative control, because I think it illustrates why cover-ups have happened from that time to this in terms of getting rid of a narrative of paleo contact and replacing it with some other orthodoxy. So the example I would go to is the final redaction that produced the Old Testament as we know it. Because in the beginning, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, were full of stories of previous civilizations 
and paleo contact. And I should clarify, paleo contact means the theory that our ancestors had contact with other civilizations in the deep past, paleo early or in the beginning contact contact. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the uh, worldview of people like Solomon, you'll realize that uh, what we think of as Judaism originally was a canon of paleo contact. They acknowledged the Tseva Hashemayim, the armies that came from the sky. And the Tseva Hashemayim came and conquered and colonized planet Earth, divided the lands among their members, the Elohim, and they governed Project Earth as the El Ba'adat, the Council of Powerful Ones or the Council of Power. And that was the story until the uh, 8th to 6th century BCE, when there was a reform of Judaism, beginning with King Hezekiah and continuing through his grandson, King Josiah, being completed by the senior priest Ezra. And in that period, the scriptures were collated, edited, retranslated, and changed from a narrative of paleocontact to a narrative of Yahwist monotheism. Uh, and so the old memories were deleted to be replaced by this new monotheistic worldview. Why, I hear you ask? Well, because Hezekiah was a Yahwist. He worshipped this violent colonizing conqueror Yahweh. Yeah. And his logic was, if I worship that being, then all my people should worship that being. I don't need them running off to other priesthoods for other narratives. I don't want them running off to other prophets to get information I don't want them to have. Um, and frankly, uh, they should believe what I tell them. And frankly, all their tithes should be coming to me in Jerusalem, not to these other authorities and priesthoods scattered around the Levant. Thank you very much. And so he began what was considered a ritual reform. And that involved knocking down all the standing stones that had been erected in the places where his ancestors had met advanced beings. It meant destroying all the temples dedicated to advanced beings who had helped his ancestors in the past become an agricultural city-building civilization. Because throughout Judea, there were standing stones and temples for exactly those reasons. And so you had um, temples to Chemosh, Dagon, Milcom, Asherah. Jeremiah laments the fact that in the 8th century BCE, on every high hill and under every green tree, from every fortified town to every garrison city, you would find installations to Asherah. And the people remembered her with thanksgiving. When they had harvest festivals, they honored not Yahweh, but Asherah. Yeah. Uh, Jeremiah tells us this was the case. But then he adds this little phrase, isn't that awful? Isn't that idolatrous? And the reader's thinking, oh, okay, so that's idolatry, is it? Well, Hezekiah thought it was, so he demolished all those things, sent the army into the Jerusalem temple that Solomon had had built, and told them, I want you to destroy all the carvings of the Tseva Hashemayim. I don't want people remembering there were many of them or what they looked like. I want you to destroy the carving of Yahweh, because I don't want people remembering what he looked like. 
I want people to think Yahweh means the ultimate God, the creator of everything, not that feathered serpent that exists in the temple. Get rid of that. And so there's this ritual reform. Uh, the army went around confiscating figurines of Asherah, broke their heads off so they could never be used in these harvest festivals ever again. And from time to time, the priesthoods servicing those other temples would be executed. The ritual reform then became a narrative reform under his grandson, Josiah, who became king when he was only eight and was advised by a Yahwist high priest, Hilkiah, and uh, Yahwist royal scribe, Shaphan. And together they set about creating scriptures that would endorse Yahweh as the only God. And because he's a violent God, that then justifies violence by the king. And by the end of that reform, instead of many temples, you've got one temple. Instead of many priesthoods, you've got one priesthood, the one run by Hilkiah. Oh, well, there's a turn up. So now you've got one God, one king, one high priest, one temple in Jerusalem, all the tithes coming to that high priestly family in Jerusalem, all the narrative control, that high priestly family in Jerusalem. What we all believe will now be set by that high priestly family in Jerusalem, which is rather strategic because the monarchy didn't last long after Josiah. And so before long, Judaism's only authority was the high priestly family at the temple in Jerusalem. And so you can see what has happened is a massive power grab, a massive wealth grab, and a massive grab in terms of narrative control. And I would say that is the reason for suppression, non-disclosure, obliteration of paleo-contact narratives from that time to this, because all governments want a structure like that, where, where only they are the arbiters of truth. They are the Ministry of Information, and you can't get other stories from other authorities because they just don't exist. So you have your one king or your one government, and they set the uh, syllabus in the schools. They police what's on the TV and in the media, so on and so forth. And they will also police what you are allowed to see in terms of archaeological sites, exactly the same as Hezekiah covering up all the standing stones in his day. So that's the big picture I explain in the Eden Conspiracy. Wow, yeah, I didn't know all those details at all. That's great. Um, yeah, so do you think then, so we can obviously see that the Sumerian tablets are, well, we can obviously see that the book of Genesis is is like crunching down thousands of years and just to basically a few paragraphs in Genesis, but what, where did the Hebrews come in that story? Because I mean, you get, um, I mean, maybe was it, was it during the Moses time or was it before that, that, I mean, they've obviously amended a lot of things in there too, but, uh, it seems as though, um, the beginning of the Bible does match echoes of these, these other tablets, not just the Sumerian tablets, but a lot of, you know, ancient history, as well as the probably even the Mahabharata and other texts out there, the Emerald Tablets. So where where is it that the Hebrews intervened in the story in the Bible, do you think? 
Like at what point? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, firstly, I think that in the Bible, we've got the story of many external interventions. I think we've got the story of many planetary cataclysms. I think we've got a number of stories of uh, human origins, which have all been pasted together uh, to form this now single book. And you do have to do a bit of detective work to work out what period of history are we in now. And we've also got conflated stories. So I think when we get to the story of Abraham, the uh, patriarch of the Hebrew people, you've got a story of a cultural patriarch that's been fused with a human origins story. I think if you read it closely, you'll realize that Abraham and Sarah are really a kind of Adam and Eve story and that they actually predate uh, full-blown modern homo sapiens sapiens. And yet it's been glued together with a more recent story that uh, demarks the Hebrew people from other people groups. So you really do have to do a little bit of digging. And one of the ways you can do it is to follow the words that have been translated as God and realize instead of a seamless story of God, you've actually got stories of Elohim, stories of Yahweh, stories of El Shaddai, stories of El Elyon. And they are different stories from different periods of history. And the chronology in which they appear today is not necessarily the original chronology. Now, you mentioned this overlapping with other narratives around the world, and it absolutely does, because the overarching story of the Hebrew scriptures is of human colonies governed over by different Elohim. Right. So clearly there's been an invasion, uh, an annexation of the land, and never mind native title, it's all been redistributed among the Elohim who then compete with one another for hegemony and resources. And in fact, in the Bible, when El Elyon parcels out the lands, he gives the Yahweh character a people group with no land. And that's a great injustice. Wherever you have a people group uh, denied a homeland uh, with no citizenship, that is a profound injustice. It's an engineered scarcity that means you're going to have conflict and warring. El Elyon did that among the Elohim. That scenario replicates, if you read Norse legend, African legends, um, Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, Assyrian, uh, it repeats around the world. That's the basic scenario. Another very interesting area of overlap is when you go to Genesis 1 for the what we think of as the creation account, and read it closely, and you'll realize before any creating is done, planet Earth already exists, only it's in trouble. It's been devastated. It's been laid waste. It's flooded and shrouded in a pool of dust and ash and soot. And when the Elohim turn up, it's to rehabilitate the planet. That story of rehabilitation is in the Sumerian story, it's in the Mesoamerican story. It's in Nigerian story. It's in Filipino story. It's a very interesting point at which the stories overlap, repeat, and finesse each other. And they do so in surprising detail. 
So this aspect of a flooded planet, a dark atmosphere, the atmosphere nearing needing to be cleared, beings arriving in the sky, clearing the sky, separating the water, drying the lands, using vortices of wind, all those elements repeat across all those cultures that I've just named. And it was these correlations that in the beginning got me on the path of reading these stories differently. Instead of reading them as fiction and fable, I began to realize there were clues here that they were reporting the same visual memory using different language, different names, different metaphors, but they'd all seen the same thing. And so now I approach these ancient narratives, not reading them in a fundamentalist way, as if they are pure science, pure diary entries, but asking the question, what memory is being carried by this story? And I find it's the same memory the world over. Yeah. I, yes, I, that's what I found too. And, and just in, in looking at all these different translated tablets and uh, it all it all echoes of the same story. And you did mention human origins, and I wanted to get into that with you a little bit. Um, through my research, I believe in God, and I think we're all connected to that divine light. But at, at all points, it all points to um, our human story. All points to an intervention that happened with whatever beings that were here, which were, uh, you know, there are debates on what it was. It primitive man, or was it Neanderthals? I, I like Lloyd Pye's theory, even of Sasquatch. There's there's a lot of stuff in there but and and then you have the race of advanced beings who mix dna with one of those things and and themselves and that's why humans don't fit in with the rest of nature but we can adapt to it as well but with all that in mind is eden where it all started or eden in sumerian tablets and do you see like eridu as the actual first city or are these sites that they're uncovering in turkey even older um you know, so I, I, if we were to piece together this human timeline, where do you, where do you put Sumerian origins, Turkey sites, mm. Atlantis, the Younger Dryas? I know there's a lot in there, but just like uh, from what I'm gathering, <clears throat> it says in the Sumerian tablets that the kingship was lowered from heaven into Eridu. So it, it seems like that would have been the first civilization. But again, it's one of those things in that. They're not doing, they're not dig. they're not excavating that place. They should, you know, that should be of interest to many people, but it's not. And it's just laid to waste out there. But anyway, um, yeah. Do you see this Eridu as the first city? And do you see that as where humans began Homo sapiens sapiens? Well, in the Sumerian canon, Eridu is the first city and it relates to the descent of the sky people uh, from the heavens. However, if we're reading the Enuma Elish, that story is connected with a terraforming story, such as we mentioned before, or I should say a rehabilitation story, because it begins with the separation of waters. So this then connects with the question of, well, how old is Eridu then? And I think Eridu is older than we think it is. And bear in mind that the Sumerian stories of human origins are 
stories of a time long before themselves. So we can date the Sumerian civilization and we can read their literature. But if you read the, um, the colophons, the introductions to the texts, they're referring back to a story that is far older than their own culture. So Eridu goes much further back. Um, I'm doing work with Brian Foster, Matthew LaCroix, and Billy Carson this year around finds in Turkey, which pushes those finds much further back in history, I think, than we've uh, hitherto believed. So we're tapping something very ancient in those stories. Similarly, in the Bible, I think the, the stories of beginnings go much further back there than we've thought, certainly further back than 6,000 years, but I think further back than Homo sapiens, because, for instance, there is um, a, a couple of verses that occur in Genesis uh, 9, 10, and 11 that would seem to make a reference to a prior civilization at the time of Pangea. So that's the time when all the continents were joined together. Right. There's this verse that says that there was a time when there was only one landmass and one coastline. Well, if there was a civilization on that landmass, we wouldn't know anything about it. It would be ground to a powder by now. And it has nothing to do with anything we know about Homo sapiens. Um, so how ancient is that information? So it all gets very, very interesting. As yeah. to the storyline for Homo sapiens, again, that has become much, much longer, much, much more interesting. So when I was at school, the evolution of man was apparently a very simple matter, that um, there was a line in the primate family tree that had simply carried on getting better and better and better until it produced people like you and me. Now we realize that Homo sapiens sapiens um, interbred with Denisovans, with Neanderthal people, um, many of us have Neanderthal genes in us and Denisovan genes in us. We now that we now know that we coexisted on the planet with other hominids as well, and that our ancient stories of little people and of giants are part of a cultural memory from that time. We have some of these stories embedded in the Bible, and certainly we do in the Mayan story of human origins and the Popol Vuh, which I think is very interesting for how it relates to our understanding of human evolution. Because the Popol Vuh says that the visitors came, these feathered serpents, and they did genetic engineering using the raw material they found on planet Earth. So they're working with animals, they're working with primates, and their chief genetic engineer Quetzalcoatl, Kukumats, Kukukan, his job is to produce a workforce. And so he's experimenting for quite some time. And the Popol Vuh says that the experiments led to a number of dead ends, uh, that they produced uh, very capable beings that had no interest in serving the feathered serpents, making mistakes at the level of engineering something like a gorilla, which is very capable, but then finding it has no interest in bringing you your tea and your paper and your slippers. <laughs> well, by the time they've got it right, they have produced us 
plus it says the ape-like creatures that live in the forest. Now, there are two interesting things about that. And one is that it confirms modern evolutionary theory that says that human beings and apes share a common ancestor. So it's not that we evolved from apes. We and the hairy apes share a common ancestor. The Popol Vuh records a story that is probably thousands of years old that says exactly the same. Only it says it didn't happen naturally. It happened through genetic modification. And then when it uses this phrase that describes us and the ape-like creatures in the forest, that can either mean ape kind or it can mean creatures who are like apes. And that's when you get into the, the, the hairy people stories, the Yeren, the Almasti, the Sasquatch, the Mohoi, the Yawi. And the Mayan suggestion is that we are related to them. We are both offshoots of this ancient period of experimentation. And you mentioned, Lumas, that we are a bit of an anomaly on planet Earth. We are not um, as well adapted to our planet as the other animals are. Right. And it was something that really gripped my attention Way back when I was 11 years old, I remember pondering this and thinking, how can we be the alpha species when if you or I were left in the wilderness after three days, three nights, we'd probably be either very sick in hospital or deceased yeah. unless we could light a fire, build a shelter, make a weapon. All that comes from our higher intelligence. And I found that science couldn't explain this massive difference between us and the other animals in terms of that kind of intelligence, without which we are less well adapted to the planet than they are. So at the age of 11, I read Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, and I found him making the proposal that our emergence as the alpha species would make better sense if we allowed for the possibility of external interventions in our development. Yep. And I thought, yes, actually, that does make sense. What I didn't know was that Eric von Daniken wasn't the first to suggest this, that Plato had suggested this two and a half thousand years ago, and that many of the early church fathers believed exactly what Plato had said, and they saw no conflict between their beliefs in an ultimate God, a creative source, an understanding that we as a species are the result of visitations and adaptations by cosmic cousins more advanced than ourselves. So it's an ancient, ancient story told by many ancestral peoples. And it's those ancient stories that I shine a light on in my Eden series. And I, I love doing that because it's a way of keeping our feet on the ground as we ask the question, who are we? Where did we come from? Is this a populated universe? And if so, what are the implications for what is happening right now? Yeah, those are some of the most important truths in the world. Absolutely. I, um, yeah, there, there's a lot in there to, to, you know, that we could talk about. Like, I mean, I've always thought too, is how come when we look at the sun or we're in the sun, we squint our eyes and no animals on earth do. And how come we live on a planet that, uh, is mostly water and we're not equipped to breathe underwater. There's so many things that, uh, 
are definitely weird about the human species where we just don't really fit. And it obvious, it's always been pretty obvious that there's been some kind of manipulation in the past and all kinds of things like that. I, I, um, I was going to, and you mentioned something, I should just bring it up before I forget is I did a show about the moon uh, and, and we have cultures on this planet that say there was a time before the moon. Um, and I've looked at different things, you know, the, the moon is a spaceship theory, but I mean, you know, you have this one legend, um, it's a Zulu legend. I'm sure you've heard it. The two brothers, Wawane and Mapanku, causing mm-hmm. the earth to have a tilt and then causing a great cataclysm that maybe gave us the flood and other crazy events. So um, is that is that something that you've looked into too, the moon and how it may have played a role in maybe the younger Dryas I, I, or who knows, uh, some kind of ancient cataclysm because we do have multiple cultures on this planet that it talked about before the moon. Yes, you're right. Uh, it is multiple cultures. And so you've got Greco-Roman historians uh, and poets referring to the people who were living on Earth when the moon arrived. So what's interesting about that for me is timelines, because it's actually not that controversial to say that there was a time when the Earth didn't have the moon. I think I can say it's the mainstream scientific view that the moon was captured by the Earth's gravity at some point and that the moon originated in another part of the cosmos. Now, whether that capture was natural or engineered is a rather interesting question, but that's what science is saying today. So it's very interesting, as you say, that there are multiple cultures that talk about the capture of the moon, how could they possibly know that? When were these populations resident on planet Earth when the moon arrived? Is that Homo sapiens? Is that a previous civilization on the planet? Because the stories acknowledge that the arrival of the moon was cataclysmic for the conditions on planet Earth. But it's only one of a number of cataclysms And it's only one of a number of objects in space which have impacted the progress of our planet. I mean, the sun being one, solar flares is pretty significant. Asteroid impacts, we know those are pretty significant. Uh, The Younger Dryas cold period, I, I lean towards the view that we are looking probably at the uh, the Clovis comet, the asteroid theory that that triggered the most recent ice age, and that some of our flood narratives come from the beginning and the end of that most recent ice age, the Younger Dryas Cold period. But Plato argued that there are cataclysms on planet Earth on a fairly regular basis. He suggested every 5,000 years or so, right. uh, something happens that would take civilization here back to a virtual zero to have to reemerge all over again. And he said it was down to the movement of objects through space. And he doesn't say what the objects are, could be a moon, could be an asteroid, could be something else. But I find it interesting that that's what he was putting forward at a time when other people were talking about an Earth under a dome, uh, 
he was already saying, no, there's a, there's a real reality beyond what we perceive. It may appear that we're all under this dome, but there are people who live on islands in the sky who can tell you different, who know about deep space. And in fact, our planet is a globe, he said, suspended in space. And he has a pretty good go at describing what it looks like from a distance. And his description was not how we pictured planet Earth until 1968, when finally we had a photograph of Earth from a distance from Apollo 8, and we realized, oh my goodness, Plato got it right. It really does look like a marble that's a swirl of colors of white and blue and gold. It doesn't look like a map wrapped around a ball as we'd imagined it before. And this you can see this reflected actually in, in the Star Trek canon. In the first couple of years of Star Trek, planet Earth looks like that. It's, it's a map wrapped around a ball. And then by the end of Star Trek, they're showing it as it appeared from Apollo 8, this marble swirly pattern. How on earth did Plato know that? two and a half thousand years ago. And I think the moment we saw that photograph, we should have all run back to Plato and started taking what he said a whole lot more seriously when he talked about space, the planet, ET interventions, and previous civilizations. And that's where I go in The Eden Conspiracy, Echoes of Eden, and in my latest book, The Invasion of Eden. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, there's there's a lot there's a lot uh, that we should be looking toward Plato for 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 sure, and it was um, I think I I guess when we get into a little more modern times with the Roman Church, there was a time where even like uh, like we were talking about a little bit ago, the Old Testament and the New Testament were not even together, and somehow there was another cover-up you could say or sanitation of our of our ancient past that took place probably within the time of constantine or if, if i'm right or and a lot of this stuff got buried too yes well the the story of the orthodoxization of christianity is a very informative story if you're wanting to understand narrative control so just like King Josiah and the high priest Hilkiah wanted this orderly theocratic society of one God, one king, one high priest. Well, the Roman emperors wanted something pretty similar. God up here, the emperor just below him, the senators and bishops in the middle, and then the people and priests meekly paying, praying and obeying at the bottom, all being told what to believe from the top. They didn't want a more complicated picture than that. So, if there were scriptures that said, oh, no, we all can have access to cosmic information. So you don't have to rely on, you know, the imperial department of religion to tell you what's what. You can find out for yourself. No, 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 we don't want that. We want a department of education. We want a ministry of truth. And so you have to get rid of the, the Montanists, get rid of the Gnostics, pare it down to this religion of worship and obedience. And so there's a distortion that happens through this political agenda. And so you've got the canonization of the New Testament, which on the one hand is very interesting because 
they were pulling together literature that they felt the whole church could agree on. But there's a dark side to it, and that is that there were many narratives about Jesus in the beginning. There were many experiences and um, theologies that marked the kaleidoscope of Christianity in the beginning. What happened to them? Well, they had to be buried in the desert for their protection so that they wouldn't all be burnt to a cinder, because that's what happened with the non-Orthodox works. I mean, you go to some very important, significant church fathers, you can't find a page of what they wrote because it was all destroyed. And in 381, the Emperor, Emperor Theodosius decides he can weigh in on a theological fine point, settle the matter, and then militarize that orthodoxy so that anyone who's going to agitate for another theology, well, they are attacking the unity of his department of religion. Suddenly, they're an enemy of the state. And so that's why you move into a period where the Gnostic literature is being buried in the Nag Hammadi desert, because the emperor says, this is the truth, and don't you dare contradict me. So we're now in a world of orthodoxy and heresy. And orthodoxy was enforced through violence, which probably tells you enough about how seriously you can take the boundaries of that orthodoxy if you need violence to enforce it. So it's a, it's a very colourful story. I touch on it in the Eden Conspiracy. It's worth knowing about, not just to understand where modern Christianity came from and to begin to see the wood for the trees, because I'm still a great fan of Jesus. I'm still a believer in God but I don't read it through the lens of worship and obedience and heaven and hell. Those are all uh, imperial dogmas. Those are all church institutional dogmas. They don't come from the source of Christianity. And I think it's worth rehabilitating these things because until you do, um, you're living with a God who is a mass murderer. Right. You're living with a God who has no morality. And because of that, the name of God has been used to justify us invading other people's countries, to justify genocide, to justify misogyny, witch hunts, auto de fe, executions. Uh, many of the prejudices that probably you and I grew up with about um, witches, psychics, the paranormal, and even extraterrestrial contact have come from that narrative control that began back in the day of the orthodoxization of Christianity. And so it's a deliberate attempt to cut us off from other sources of information and from belief systems that would actually allow us to live more confident and more exploratory lives. We can have a much better human experience than this once we shake off the fear and terror of thinking the wrong thing, believing the wrong thing, displeasing a violent almighty. We have to dismantle that if we are to become all that we can be. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And it is a process. And I think for anybody out there listening, it would be beneficial, but you do have to go through it all and reconsider. So I guess for some people, that's really hard because they are fixed in their belief systems and stuff. But I mean, I think, has it been a struggle for you to go from being in the church, being, being uh, a full believer and everything that you read to 
becoming to seeing it for what it, it really is and becoming now uh, kind of a uh, more master of your perspective, so to speak. I mean, have you, have you had it, has it been a struggle or has it been more like putting together a puzzle and kind of like intriguing probably I, both? I've that. been, re- I've been really lucky. I hear from people every day for whom it's been a real struggle because they've come from say a family that holds a fundamentalist faith or they've been in a very doctrine controlled environment like watchtower and they've had to leave behind friends and family in order to enter a bigger universe answer bigger questions and believe things different to what the higher ups are telling them and it's been very very painful for them i was lucky because really from the get-go, my entry into the world of faith and ministry happened only as a result of my being able to separate the credibility of Jesus from the credibility of institutional church. If I had confused those two questions, I would not have become a Christian. But because I was reading the Gospels and thinking, whoa, there's something to this Jesus, and he doesn't really line up with a lot of Christian history and imperialism. I like this Jesus figure, though. That's how I went in. And so from the get-go, I was seeing clear blue water uh, between inherited Christian behaviors and beliefs and what I could see Jesus was on about. And so that was a better start point for me. I was also very lucky that in the first church I went to, I had two wonderful pastors, David Pitches and Barry Kissel, who pastored that church together. David was a bishop and the senior minister, and Barry was the assistant minister. I heard teaching from the both, and when I'd been a believer for a few months, I realized that they disagreed on some doctrinal matter that I thought was very important. I think it was something like infant baptism. And uh, when I spoke to David about it, he said, yes, we, we hold a different view on those things. And yet uh, they loved each other. They worked together beautifully. But it was an amazing signal to me that being a Christian wasn't about signing up to a finite set of doctrines, knowing that I had everything right. They couldn't both be right, surely, if if they differed on this point. And it was a signal to me that being a believer is not being wedded to a set of conclusions. It's about seeking the truth. And so that was a very good priming for me. And then as I got into the world of theological education, and for 15 years I trained pastors in the history of Christian thought and in hermeneutics, that's the principles of interpreting ancient texts, I was able to see anomalies in the texts that don't line up with the stories of institutional Christianity. I could begin to see there are, there's a layer of story that we don't preach on in there. I was also lucky that I had a period between pastorates where I could go back to those anomalies and drill down into the Hebrew and the Greek, go to the root meanings of the key words and find this paleocontact story hidden in plain sight. I was lucky because I think while you're pastoring a church, you don't have the luxury of time to do that kind of research. And you've kind of got to keep your doctrinal picture coherent so that you're ready from Sunday to Sunday to give a coherent sermon. It's a very, very 
is a very blessed and fortunate pastor. A very blessed pastor will have a congregation who will give him or her the freedom to explore more expansively than that. And I do have friends who have that luxury. My luxury was an ultimate Frisbee injury that meant I was invalided out long enough to do this research without the um, imperative of making it all make sense within six days before the next sermon. And it was having that time for research without that being beholden that allowed me the mental space to see what was in front of me in the texts. Was it difficult for me? Not really, because it was a gradual waking up to what was there. I'd had a suspicion for a long time long time that there were ETs in the Bible. I'd had a suspicion for a long time that we're in a populated cosmos and I needed to work out how these things work together. I'd had some years since the Roman Catholic colloquium to realize, all right, there is something to see here. But I, uh, the wobbly moment I remember was when I suddenly realized that you and I are not the direct creation of an intelligent puppet master god and that we had been adapted by other life forms and my emotional response to that realization because i couldn't avoid it from the data i was finding but my emotional reaction was one of it was like a grief because i had lived in this world where god was my heavenly father he he's fashioned us in detail as a species we're the apple of his eye aren't we and then suddenly to find, well, no, actually, we are like a German shepherd that's been bred for particular purposes, or we're like Dolly the sheep that's been genetically interfered with and cloned, is a bit lowering. But yeah. I had to just think it through. I had to think it through and realize once you acknowledge a populated universe, once you get into the idea that life is the norm in the cosmos rather than the exception, there is no reason why we shouldn't be like Dolly the sheep. Why we shouldn't be like a German shepherd. If the source of the cosmos allows those things to happen to the German shepherd, to Dolly the sheep, why not to us? And I had to begin realizing my vision of God was of a puppet master that is not rooted in any reality. And I had to ask afresh, well, what do I mean by God? And my vision of God began to expand. And the Roman Catholic colloquium said, you have to realize that God, the creator, has been busier than we thought, which is a sweet, cozy way of expressing it. But ultimately, you get to a much more cosmic vision of God. The Apostle Paul has a phrase which I find helpful when he describes theos, the word that Jesus and those who wrote for him used for God. And he had to explain what he meant to a non-religious audience. He said, by theos, I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being, of which we are all offspring. And I actually think that's quite a helpful definition of God. There's no separation anxiety in that. Yeah. Separation anxiety is what um, religion trades in. But in that vision, we are, we're all connected. We're all emanations of source. My intelligence is a participation in source intelligence. My consciousness, an emanation of source consciousness, is just logical to think of it that way. And Plato takes it a step further 
when he argues that the source of the material cosmos could be likened to a unified field of consciousness and that it expresses itself through the material cosmos. And I find that a helpful way of seeing things. It's different to the puppet master vision. It's different to that um, Heavenly Father slash Santa Claus image. But ultimately, I think it leads to a far more empowered, secure, confident, mystical, wonderful vision of the cosmos and of ourselves. Yeah, I like that too. And I've had to do that same thing, but in my own way. And I, 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 I don't, I only see it as freeing. I guess it's just hard for some people because they don't want to, I, I don't, people don't want to be stuck in between too long. They want to know the truth. They don't want to have to go through. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Reframing is difficult. And I get people who may have started one of my books and there'll be a few pages in and they'll be in the deep end of their reframing and they'll email me and they'll say, can you just quickly give me like an email summary of all your books so I can fast track this reframing? And the answer, the answer is really, no, I can't do that because you can't reframe that fast. It's yeah. why it's a series of books. It's why it's a series and not a single book. It takes time. It takes a lot of thinking through, and it does take some emotional adjustment as well, but it is so worth the journey. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. It is worth it. I mean, I've gone through some of that myself and just, you know, exploring consciousness through various ways and, it's um, I'm comfortable now, but there's been times I've been very uncomfortable with like an unsure. And, and I guess that's just the process of debunking the, uh, the stuff you don't need and, and destroying, like basically unlearning what you learned. And, and it's, it's fine. It's just, we all have to do that in this, in this world. Yes, we do. I think the hardest aspect is uh, how lonely that reframing can be. I mean, if you are in a family where everyone holds to a fundamentalist faith, you might suddenly find yourself very lonely. If you are in Watchtower, you'll be cut off from everybody. But I hear from people who've come from those backgrounds every week, and some weeks it's every day, and they wouldn't trade that journey for anything. I find I've been really surprised, pleasantly surprised, by the number of senior Uh, Jewish teachers and rabbis, Christian ministers, Christian academics who communicate with me and who love that I put all this on the table but through busting this taboo. And there have been times for me when it's been quite a lonely track. Um, We have to find uh, comrades and find fellow researchers in the online space to compare notes and to keep our feet on the ground. But uh, this is one of the wonderful benefits of the internet, that it is possible to do that. And people need that from time to time. I love keeping people company uh, in book form, in video form, electronically, because there can be tracks of this reframing that essentially you really have to do on your own. 
I was incredibly blessed that my wife and I made this reframing journey together. And yeah. It's funny how it happened. Uh, we hit a little bit of turbulence here. And opening up her theology and her worldview. And yet from the start point, from month to month, we come I think it's so worth it because it is a, an empowering worldview shift that happens, not just in terms of not living in terror and fear, but in terms of having the energy and the excitement to explore what's out there and the motivation to explore who am I, what am I capable of, who are you, what are you capable of? And in fact, to make that learning journey together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's great with the, the World Wide Web now that we can connect with people that are like-minded like that. Because it is very lonely. It would have been very lonely before more than now. Because now we can get on communities and forums and, you know, listen to the people like-minded and other podcasts and whatever. And it's definitely a good time for all the information in the world to be together and to uh, find a lot of truths on this planet. I think it is. And I think it makes it easier to spot narrative control when it happens, because for the most part, um, the internet is uh, a place of a lot of noise, a lot of different views, um, a lot of ideas, a lot of experiences and possibilities. And then from time to time, especially if you turn the TV on, you'll think, oh, there's only one narrative here. We're looking at this thing that's happening in the news. They're all saying exactly the same thing, almost word for word sometimes. And so it's easier to spot that. And I think when we see narrative control, it's um, it's like a red flag saying there's something to see here and it's not what's being said. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. I want to just go back and ask you, um, now with this line of history we've kind of painted here, where does the dark occult come into the picture in history? The, the rulers of secret societies, you know, they practice rituals and use symbology going way back in history. And where do you think that starts? Because it seems like all of our controllers here in today's modern society go to the dark occult. And, um, and I guess uh, what journey has that taken in history from ancient day to now? And would you say that these, People are worshiping another entity that maybe a darker entity that came in uh, in this populated universe. Uh -oh. oh, that's a great question. What is the connection of our elites with occult practices? You will find this uh, hinted at in the Hebrew scriptures when we get into the story of Moloch sacrifices. It's brief when he talks about elites um, terrorizing and degrading people. It's there in Hawaiian story as well, which I explore in my new book, Connection, between um, secret societies, occult practices, and elites. And it's an ancient, ancient story. I think if you follow the story of the Moloch sacrifices, 
in the Bible of human sacrifice in Middle of America. And then sit down and watch Jim Henson's movie, The Dark Crystal. You'll have a pretty good way. I have no idea this might be referring to something real to do with um, uh, organized occult activity of secret societies. But it is. Look at that. Look at Monsters, Inc. Perhaps watch Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. And uh, then I think you can piece together um, a picture of what's going on in some elite circles. Now, I say some elite circles because it's so easy to always demonize the other. And if I use the word elites, you know, most of all, we'll have a, a sneering attitude towards them because we're not them. Um, but there is no community of people that is monolithic. There's no community of people where everybody thinks the same thing. And that's true whether you're talking about elite banking families uh, it's true whether you're talking about the shareholders of aerospace companies. It's true if you're talking about military intelligence. It's true if you're talking about government. And I do think it's helpful to uh, humanize our conversation a little bit because the reason we're getting progress in terms of disclosure is because of this spectrum of belief. It's because within the Pentagon are some who are in a forward-leaning position with regards to bringing the public into the picture. I think it's easy to um, become very depressed and frustrated when you realize the truth of some of the dark side of the story. And it's in the invasion of Eden, but my main emphasis is let's do business with those who are in a forward-leaning position at a human level and at an eater in the Galactic Council, to use Hermeshed's phrase, who are here for human progress and human ascension, here for us to have a better human experience. I think we need to be doing as much business with those demographics as possible. I think those who are pushing the story forward in the political support we possibly can. I think journalists who are wanting to keep the pressure up in terms of accountability, we need to be supporting them. We need to be telling our mass media outlets, our news outlets, we want to consume stories about this. So keep this story rolling. I mean, ultimately, the shareholders of CNN and Fox News want to make money. They want to know what news will sell. And it's up to us, the consumer, to say, we are interested in this. We want your journalists to go after this. And so I think I want to be one who encourages people in those positive, here's something we can do kind of directions. Uh, it's very easy to just have your head in your hands in despair when you focus on what we might be up against, who the powers are, who want something quite different for humanity. But I'm glad they are not the only ones in the picture and that our future is not set in stone. Yeah, 
Yeah, me too. Yeah. There's a lot to look at with it. And I think, I think that as I've gone through this research for like, I've been on this, this journey for 25 years now of looking at a whole lot of things. Um, I'm realizing the more I go with it and try to go and research in all these different categories that the, the world is, is more nuanced and there's a lot more to it than just labeling a bunch of things. So it's a simple, cute little package. I've, I've realized that now uh, coming into this later time of research that really there's so many layers to it all. And it's not just one thing. And, and it's, I'm sure glad it's not because there's a lot, there's a lot of different characters out there, good, bad, and, you know, not everything's one, two sides. And that I'm glad that we're, uh, I'm glad that the world's not just those, just two sides and, and everything's that simple. That's what I've noticed through this research. Definitely. It's uh, the truth is a multi-layered thing. It is. It is. Well, Paul, we're, we're coming up to, uh, the end, I think here, cause, um, I know it's hot where you are and, uh, but, uh, you got a lot of things going on. You got uh, another book coming out. The uh, what was that? Sorry, what was it? The uh, another Eden series. So, that's right. The invasion of Eden the invasion is due of out Eden. at the beginning of April uh-huh. this year. So the invasion of Eden is coming out beginning of April of this year, and you'll be able to find it in paperback on Amazon. Okay, All right. And you're doing a big project. You you mentioned with Matt yes. That's right. Uh, Matthew LaCroix uh, has put together a project which will become a movie, mm-hmm. and it will be me, Matthew, Billy Carson, and Brian Foster, and we're going to certain sites in Turkey and in South America, and it is – well, I, I don't – I will keep my powder dry. I'll just say it is a very exciting project, so watch this space. If you want to keep up with my news – then come to paulanthonywallace.com. That's my website. Or you can find me at the fan to subscribe and support our work. You, you can go to fifthkind.tv. Sounds great. Thanks, Paul. And uh, you're always welcome on the show. And I'd like to I'd like to maybe get you back on after you've uh, created this movie with those guys. I'd like to really hear more about it. And of course, your new book. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. More than happy to. Thanks for today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right, all the best. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that talk. I know I did, and I will be continuing to talk about our ancient past, piecing together the mystery throughout the year, amongst many other topics on this show. Uh, Paul will be featured on my documentary, as well as many others, true speakers, and it's going to come together in amalgamation of our ancient past into the present day, looking at our situation and understanding it. And, you know, that's kind of what we do anyway on this show. I hope you appreciate Chen it Down. This year will be a good year for Chen it Down. Uh, I'm going to give you a variety of topics. And I decided I'm going to touch on every single miniseries that I cover this year. I decided uh, that's what I also want to do is just give you a show to fulfill each mini series uh, here on Chant It Down. So you have a lot of different uh, variety to 
sift through this year. You won't get bored. Um, gonna go in all different ranges and topics, but the documentary is the main focus for this year for me because it is a lot of work. And I appreciate all of you who have signed on to Patreon to get Afterthoughts, the other show I do. And uh, the support really helps. It helps uh, create this this uh, documentary, in fact, and supporting the show. So if you would like to, if you're feeling the, ne- the need to support the show and you get a good value out of it, only if you get good value out of this show and you feel like putting the extra support, join Patreon. You get a whole nother show, Afterthoughts, in which I talk about the show itself, but we talk about topics, did a lot of drive arounds and stuff like that, if that sounds interesting to you. But much love to you guys. Thank you for tuning into Chant It Down. This year started a little late, but better late than never. And much love to you guys. Be a warrior, not a warrior. Chant It Down. Chant It Down Radio's coming to you live from the Hawaiian Islands, coming from the perspective of complete freedom, coming from wisdom outside the system, and then some. This is the mouthpiece of the natural earth forgotten. At this point in time, humanity's been kept from the truth, so Chant It Down Radio offers the coordinates to a path out. You're searching for something whole, cause what you see real life. You're watching this world unfold, the truth in needs a lie. Rickling what's been stole, the need to free one's mind. Uncover the truth exposed, so people see the light. Let's turn it down so we can know. It's simple, we just break it down a little bit so we can process all. Make the switch and elevate yourself to conscious mode. And it's beneficial, we can get this kind of growth and get the future. Generators want to start the whole thing With the message demons ready, we can start a post Taking in the simulator and getting lots of numbers Waking up the possibility to try to stop hypnosis Shh.